Yeah, you know what? When I first heard about the um, Qatar winning the right to host the World Cup, my my first worry was, um, you know, what happens if somebody kicks the ball like outside of the stadium? Somebody's gonna have to go and get it from Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, when I started, <laughs> when I started thinking about it, I was like, um, it's it's really it's it's unworkable. Even if they build all the stadiums and and all of that, there's just not enough of a momentum around. And you know, who's actually a, a very passionate footballing country that's uh, just near Qatar and it's got the critical mass and all of that. Saudi Arabia. So that would have been the obvious choice, except um, uh, Saudi Arabia has been waging uh, uh, a non-violent war against Qatar, along with all the other Gulf states. So, so that rules out any kind of possibility of co-hosting, unless uh, Qatar decides to co-host the World Cup with Iran, which I think that's going to escalate things a little bit. <laughs> But, but 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 I think they're approaching it all the wrong way, you know. I mean, they they Qatar should have bid for the right to have like a Qatar World Cup, but they should have held it in England. But still. <laughs> <laughs> Hello to listeners, new and old. This is Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast. At the end of the end of history, what comes next? Today we're talking about the geopolitics of the World Cup. What are the intrigues and subplots that'll shape this tournament? Is Russia an appropriate host, or should we try to separate sport and politics? At least for today, though, we're bringing sport and politics together on the eve of the World Cup. Joining us are Carl Sharo, satirist and architect known as Carl Remarks on Twitter, and Ewan Marshall, Brazil-based football journalist. I'm Alex Hochuli. I'll be hosting today. I'm at Alex double underscore 1789. Enjoy. Sorry, that we were on uh, we were on mute, so that's uh, <laughs> it didn't, it didn't really that's self self-censorship. That's good. More, more self-censorship. Say I'm opening a Budweiser, official sponsor of the FIFA World Cup 2018. Do you guys do you guys have a beer sponsor yet? Budweiser, official sponsor. Nice. It's really good. I might include that, but I mean all right, so hello, this is Alex. Let me introduce our guests. We've got here Carl Sharo, also known as at Carl Remarks on Twitter, who's a Lebanese-Iraqi architect and satirist based in London. Um, and as we're talking about football, um, with Carl, you get the good with the bad. Uh, Carl's a Liverpool fan, but supports Germany in the World Cup. So it's a bit yin and yang. Hi, Carl. Hi, but you, you forgot to mention that I only support Germany after England goes out of the tournament, which is usually after the first. <laughs> so. so it's doubly bad. You got England and Germany. So, but, but, but yeah. why, on earth, why on earth are you picking two of the most, uh, you know, historically uh, imperialist football nations? <laughs> We're going to come on you to that. What? Don't answer that. Don't answer that. We're going to come back to that. Um, so we've also got here uh, with me in São Paulo, Brazil, you and Marshall who's at Ewan Marshall on Twitter. He's a Scottish journalist and co-author of An A to Zico, An Alphabet of Brazilian Football, and he's a producer of the Gazeta Brazil YouTube channel. Um, Ewan told me he's also cooking the World Cup of food, which is one dish from each country. So you've got to tell us what's worst and what's best so far. Well, so far, what's really disappointed me is uh, Australia. I've been waiting about a couple of weeks to, to actually pluck up the courage. Those to make culinary giants. Yeah, um, really disappointed. Those, I thought they were going to do okay. Those dogs. Yeah. Hmm. What, what but, is Australian food? 
I'm, 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 I'm still not sure, actually. Um, I think I'm going to end up cook making... A, cook a meat pie flutter. Yeah, probably that, actually. With a lot of mashed potatoes and mushy peas and stuff, that actually sounds okay. Uh, no, it sounds like a crime against humanity. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of the best... Um, oof, let me see. Mexico was pretty good. That's pretty standard. We've had France, which was also delicious. You know, I That's mean, all the big hitters the slogan are really coming of Mexico. Really <laughs> <laughs> also, a surprise was Saudi Arabia was delicious. That's actually been one of the best ones so far. What um, was the dish? It was called a kabza. It was like a chicken kabza. It was fantastic. But, I mean, I don't know if My they got... My favorite thing is white people saying Arabic words. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you well, say Glaswegian it? people saying Arabic words is probably better. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> All right, so um, as well as Carl and you and we've got the regular uh, Alpha Bunga Bunga guys. We've got George Hoare in London, uh, who doesn't exist on Twitter, and Ben Fogel, who's at Benjamin Fogel on Twitter. Um, those guys are both in London. And uh, as a way of, of introducing them and introducing ourselves, I guess we might as well state our football allegiances. Uh, so, George. Uh, yeah, so club club team. Uh, originally from Reading, so Reading's my hometown team. But my big, uh, big club side team is Liverpool, and I'll be supporting England. Everybody's the neutrals' favourite uh, at the World Cup. You can have a chorus of boos now. Yeah, we can we can put that in post production. I mean, it's basically an internal recurrence of mediocrity and disappointment. <laughs> um, ben, why don't you tell us about oh, yourself? Oh, it's a good question. Well, you know, in, in my various guises, uh, I, I am from Africa, you know, and I am an editor yeah. at the... You hardly website. mentioned that, Ben. You know, I know, I, I, the journal and uh, website Africa is a country. So as part of our, uh, my allegiances, I have to support every African country until they get knocked out. And sadly, I don't think uh, none of our nations stand a chance this year. But afterwards, my allegiances run to Brazil, where I feel I am finally supporting a good team, because unfortunately South Africa loses to fake countries like Lesotho these days. It's really tragic, but at least we're not England. <laughs> In other terms, you're a football hipster. I think that's what it's called. Well, I mean, uh, if you uh, mean that I uh, have to been tormented by we lose to countries which are inside our own countries, like losing to San Marano of your Italy, like Lesotho. The existential torment of that. We should have annexed these Bantustans ages ago. But it really hurts. All right. Um, Ewan. Uh, well, as expected, my allegiance in this World Cup will be divided into three parts to Belgium, Panama, and Tunisia. I've supported them since I was a boy, and you know I'm really ready for them to come up with the goods this year. I think they've got a good chance of making it out of the group. Well, I mean at least two or three of them. Who's uh, who's the other team in their group? Oh, I don't know. Okay, just some some nothing team. <laughs> for listeners who don't have the who don't have the groups memorized, that's England. I, I, I mean, I, I describe it as a team formerly captained by Wayne Rooney. <laughs> All right, and then uh, well, Carl, we've already heard about it. It's it's Liverpool, Germany, and uh, England. That's right. Unless you want to add um, a little history of uh, Lebanese football. Yeah, I feel like at this stage I have to uh, introduce the concept of the World Cup in Lebanon because the country is sharply divided between Brazil fans and Germany fans, and at the last kind of count, 
the Brazilian fans in Lebanon outnumbered the German fans by a ratio of seven to one. Oh. <laughs> oh. So, Alex, you're co-supporting Switzerland, right? Your historical <laughs> home. Yeah. <laughs> Brazil are going to be world champions in, in a month's time. We'll, we'll just have to wait for that. Um, all right. Let, let's get down to it because we're talking about the geopolitics of the World Cup. And actually, for, for listeners who don't listen to us that regularly, uh, there's one other Alpha Bunga Bunga regular who's Phil Cunliffe and who can't be with us because he doesn't understand anything about football. Um, so with that out of the way, uh, let's get on to the question of Russian Russia hosting this tournament. Because there's been a lot out there about how Russia don't deserve to host this. And we're going to talk a little bit about what qualifies a country as a host or as a good host. Um, as a way to introduce this topic, Simon Cooper in the FT wrote about the 2010 decision to award the World Cup to Russia in 2018, uh, which also awarded the World Cup to Qatar in 2022. So he said, with hindsight, that day was a red alert to the West. Its institutions were being subverted. Soon, a series of scandals began unfurling that revealed FIFA to be even more corrupt than many had realized. Um, he notes also that Putin is the first autocrat to host the tournament since Argentina in 1978. And Cooper asks again, how did the West lose FIFA? So is FIFA the West? Um, Ewan knows a bit about this. He's going to tell us a little bit about the history of FIFA and uh, maybe a little bit about its globalization. Right. Well, yeah. So the origins of FIFA, like back in the day, FIFA was essentially this tiny bureaucracy of maybe about like 10 or 12 staff members who had the their only job was to organize a World Cup every four years. And they had no profits, no funds. It was a proper non-profit organization, you know, in, the, in, in all meanings of the word. And then after World War II, that's when FIFA starts to expand its membership. So you get all sorts of nations from Africa, from Asia, from Central America. FIFA becomes huge. But this is put against the fact that the president of FIFA at the time was this fella called Stanley Rouse, who, uh, Englishman, former FA president and sorry, uh, FA president in the in England and he's just like this old reactionary guy he thinks football should be amateur all that sort of thing pro-apartheid all that lovely delicious stuff and as this goes on he eventually alienates the world of FIFA with its hundreds of members and up pops this Brazilian uh, João Avalanche who was the president of the Brazilian FA at the time and the thing about Havalange is Havalange started in Brazilian politics and Brazilian football politics where it works exactly the same as it does in FIFA, as in like it's a federation. So you have all these states, all these FAs who each have their own vote. And FIFA was designed in that kind of structure as well after the Second World War. So Havalange comes in around the 70s. He decides, you know, this is a given. I can just go around Africa, I can go around Asia, I can promise them all sorts, and, you know, I'll win this election, I'll take over FIFA. And he did. He won by a landslide. And that is when FIFA, as we know it today, or football as we know it today, like, really begins. Because it becomes a global game. Avalanche sticks to his promise. He brings African teams into the World Cup. He brings Central American teams in. So those changes kind of, you could say that those changes hit world football like an avalanche. Like a so avalanche. It's kind of like an anti-colonial rebellion against the British imperial this... control of the game. Essentially, yeah. Well, because you had uh, 
the Europeans, like, were led by Stanley Rouse, they only tolerated the South Americans because they were really, really good at football. Like, they hated everyone else all around the world. Like, Stanley Rouse said that he would basically, you know, it was one of the worst things possible, this idea of African teams playing in the World Cup because they were rubbish, in his words. But so Havelange does this, he does make the game global and he turns the World Cup into what it is today, which is this huge money-making machine. But then at the same time, you've got Havelange needs to consolidate all of this power, which he won by basically handing out favours and like, you know, proposing developmental projects all around Africa and Central America and Asia. So to keep that up, he's got to continue giving out favours. Football is full of way more money and so it just turns into this kind of corrupt system and I mean, this reminds the 90s, me of the old brazilian expression obama's fish which means he rubs but he gets things done exactly yeah so havalanche havalanche got the job done he actually did stick to his promise he did make football a more global and inclusive game but you know that came with a lot of came with a lot of corruption at the same time but so things change in the 90s where he brings in his protege the guy who was his general secretary who we all know and love uh, set blatter who Blatter essentially learned the tricks of the trade under Havalanche for ages, but when he came in, FIFA just became this even more kind of grotesque, corrupt organization. There was no, there was no kind of pretense to even cover up their their corruption and dodgy dealings with developmental projects. They just created this little opaque state inside Switzerland, and and that's essentially where we are now. Right, and so I mean in. You know, so it gets awarded as part of this broadening out of, of the World Cup and the rotation of the tournament around different continents. You had Africa and South Africa in 2010. You had Brazil in 2014, um, both of which saw protests around the hosting of the World Cup. Uh, and now you've got it in Russia. Um, you know, Russia's a big country. It's got a footballing history. On face value, you think, well, you know, why shouldn't it host a World Cup? Um, but just to give the the other side of, of the thing, and I'm going to come to Carl for, for a comment on this. Um so just to give one example, one article, and this isn't a footballing website, so this is a sports website dipping its toe into kind of political commentary, describes Russia as a nation that has in the last decade invaded multiple countries, illegally annexed territory, led insurrections in border nations, murdered opposition journalists, and denied rights of the LGBT community. Oh, and that whole US election thing has yet to be sorted out. Wink, wink, in the most obvious possible way. Um, but, you know, in 2010, when Russia were awarded the World Cup, there was a lot less of this sort of thing. And um, Putin, when it was awarded, said, you know, you can get to know Russia. It's a unique country with a long history and a rich culture. Not bad, not bad at all. That's a direct <laughs> quote from Putin. Um, <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty good. So, I mean, Carl, you know, should Russia host the World Cup? Well, I was just thinking of the description that you said, and it just broadly applies to England, you know, and, and I don't remember. <laughs> and, I, you know, denying people, uh, uh, LGBT people, their rights, that's a, a kind of a historic tradition over here, uh, occupying other countries, invading other countries. And I don't remember anyone at uh, the time of the 2012 Olympics saying uh, uh, London shouldn't have it because Blair invaded uh, Iraq. So, <laughs> I, 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 and I'm, some people might say I'm an apologist uh, 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 to Russia, uh, but it's basically, I think we have to have a, a kind of a distance between politics and sports. And um, I think there's a very cynical uh, attempt at kind of portraying 
Western countries as the good guys, and you can see the double standards in there. So um, we all know uh, Russia is far from perfect, uh, but I think ultimately, if you're going to go around and judge it by these uh, uh, standards, I mean, I don't know, is it Costa Rica that hosts it every year uh, the <laughs> World Cup? Uh, who else? Come on, would... Scotland, surely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you were the heart of of British colonialism. <laughs> hey, 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 we had Mandela. We deserve to host it. <laughs> <laughs> Only I mean, once. Oh. Yeah, I mean, but this is the thing, right? The, the accusation uh, against Russia and the idea that Russia shouldn't host it is that it's engaging in sports washing, which is a terrible term, but it's basically using the soft power of sport to clean up uh, one's image on the global stage. Um, but, you know, you could accuse any country of doing this when it hosts a tournament. And there's definitely a certain chauvinism in the way that you explained uh, about the idea that the West somehow owns FIFA and that the West should have a monopoly on organizing things and deciding how things are run. But I think the funny thing about this, about the sports washing notion, I'm coming to, to George or Ben here, whichever one of you, is that there hasn't been much attempt by Russia to counter that narrative. You know, so you've got this Western narrative um, that, you know, Russia is a cesspit of, uh, of authoritarianism, war, um, suppression of rights and so on. But, you know, you haven't really seen a counter from Russia. So the idea that it's sports washing, like, who's it convincing? Well, I mean, uh, I think I have two comments. One is that it's very easy for the Yankee to uh, criticize this World Cup and go on the moral and political offensive against Russia because the losers didn't qualify. Yeah. And that, but most, more seriously, uh, I really think we should have that... had a sound effect there. Yankees didn't qualify. Da 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 da. And you get the sad trombone in. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, uh, more seriously, uh, well, not more seriously because I don't know what more could be serious to this. Is like I think the Russians know, as we all good we do, is that we care about football too much to boycott them. And at the end of the day, uh, I think that the football-loving masses that populate the world, uh, especially outside of the West, are not really paying any attention to the sort of Russia's anti-democratic uh, narrative which I think is really circulating, again, in, especially in the same sort of demographic that uh, poo-poos football and really sort of wags its finger as uh, reads The Guardian, for instance. So at the end of the day, I think, like, I don't think this has enough circulation for Russia to need to counter it. Uh, and more broadly, I think Russia knows that, uh, I mean, maybe they're gambling on the fact that if people see the face of Russia through football, it will be a more humanizing narrative. And I think that's probably a good thing. Yeah. I think that the, the narrative that's been really thrown out, uh, I don't, can't think exactly when it started, because at one point Putin was seen as a modernizing reformer in the West, um, that Putin is some sort of like return to czarism or Soviet Russia, and Russia is some sort of like a rogue state that stands out of exceptional order, which, I mean, uh, given the scenes uh, when Trump... Uh, started historical beef with uh, Canada, you know, the nation that famously <laughs> burnt down the White House uh, during the G7 proceedings is uh, kind of a little bit hilarious. But at the end of the day, it's like, you know, I think the uh, anti-Russian bias, and regardless of what I think of Russia as a state, which I think is probably not a very nice state, quite authoritarian, and not very democratic or progressive, uh, is a dangerous thing. And, you know, uh, the last thing I want to see is, like, nuclear armed powers playing... Uh, you know, one-upmanship on Twitter. 
Yeah, and I also, think that, that, go ahead, George. No, I'm not sure that maybe the the Russian sports washing has actually started yet. Because if they're, because clearly they're very, uh, they have very efficacious bots, and so maybe they're going to wait. Because obviously they they did Brexit, they did Trump, so <laughs> they're going to wait until the the uh, tournament actually gets underway, and then suddenly things will start appearing in your Facebook. Isn't it going well? Hasn't Russia done such a great job? So maybe they're just a bit more subtle about it. Well, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, maybe Russia doesn't feel the need to prove anything after their fans showed up England during the last last European Championship. <laughs> reference reference to the hooliganism there in case people didn't catch that reference um, but I, I mean just in terms of you know whether a World Cup should happen um, I think it's notable that only once as a host lost a tournament lost the right to host it and that was Colombia in 86 which was due to a civil war yeah and they surrendered it themselves yeah, exactly yeah um, and you know the other example and this was uh, something I already made reference to was Argentina in 78 which you know you did see threats against Argentina players um, by the military junta at the time there was maybe maybe match fixing around with the game in Peru Ewan oh yeah the, 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 the crucial game that Argentina managed to win 6-1 against Peru when they needed to win exactly by a five goal scoreline yeah, against a half decent Peru team as well. That's um, that's one for the ages, actually. That one. Yeah. So anyway, this stuff's not not unprecedented, right? Um, so I guess if we're all agree that you know it's kind of ridiculous that um, Russia should be denied to be a host. What is a criteria for a host? What does make a good host? And you know, I'm I'm thinking, looking forward to to Qatar in 2022. Um, Carl, should FIFA consider a country's internal politics, or should it just have a policy of of sovereign equality and non-interference? Um, you know what? What does make a good host, or and does it even matter who hosts it if it's just a televised spectacle? No, I mean, look at the scale of the game and the scale of the World Cup in particular. I think what matters are uh, two things very broadly. One is the infrastructure and the facilities that you're able to provide. How are people going to get around? Uh, will there uh, be enough capacity? These are uh, w- this is one set of considerations, and the other one I think it has to be a, a, a nation that let's not say but not a particularly spectacular footballing history, but at least with a passion for uh, football. And um, by that measure, I think uh, you know holding the the World Cup in a place like Qatar that's that's pushing it, but purely from the perspective of uh, will you have enough of a culture around it to create that sense of atmosphere. But aside from that, I mean, legitimately, if you're going to go around uh, scoring uh, nations on on their moral and political achievements, as I said, there'll be very, very few, if any, uh, countries are are eligible. But also, it's it's very laughable that you'd expect FIFA one of the most corrupt organizations in the history of humanity uh, <laughs> to actually be an educator of uh, who's on the or who's got the, the kind of the moral credentials um, it's, it's just absolutely laughable so I think um, we, we must always argue for this separation between politics and sport as much as it remains uh, an unattainable ideal uh, but, but you don't actually do football any favors by uh, cynically employing it in these uh, political wrangles? So, and I think we should stop using the World Cup as a as a kind of moral or political point uh, scoring uh, system. Um, and 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 you know, there's there's um, 
what happened to the Olympics in the 80s and things like that ultimately what lost is sport lost and 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 and, and I I'm completely for keeping uh, politics uh, out of sports except in this podcast uh, obviously <laughs> otherwise otherwise there would be no need whatsoever for us to be having this conversation <laughs> this is a, of course it reaches a perfect union right here so that's interesting but Carl I wanted to come back to something that you mentioned, which was in relation to infrastructure. You're an architect, uh, so I did want to ask you about the way that FIFA puts requirements on its host nations uh, to build stadia, uh, to develop infrastructure, and how we sort of think about that. I mean, just to give a little bit of backdrop, um, some FIFA requirements are include things like all stadiums must have 35,000 seats or more, and I think something like 60,000 for the, for the opener and the final. Um, and it leads to things like the St. Petersburg Stadium, which has been re- renovated now, came in 540% over budget, um, which is just a little bit of overspending. Uh, and you get new grounds which won't be used by top flight teams, which won't be filled out. So even when they withdraw some of the seating that they've put in for the World Cup, you know, you still end up with a 25,000 seater stadium, which gets 3,000 regulars for club football every week. Um, I think five new grounds won't be hosting top flight football next season. Do you think this is a serious problem, uh, Carl? And you know what is to be done about that? I have a second question. Does Qatar even have thirty-five thousand people? <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, but not at the same time. <laughs> um, so uh, this this question is is called legacy now in uh, uh, in international tournaments. You say you hear about it in Olympics and in the World Cup, and as in for planning for the day after, what happens with the stadia is a very important one, and it's actually like sponsored a whole industry of its own. And um, if you ever watched that uh, sitcom, the BBC sitcom uh, 2012, I think it was called, or something like that, a, a large part of it. And I mean, it's not the most obvious thing for comedy. The most obvious setting is the organization committee and the legacy committee and but there's huge comic potential in there but it, it's a, on a serious note it it, it is a, a quite an important uh, question but i think uh, given the upscale you know the jump in the the size of the stadium and all these requirements there's a bit of redundancy there that we can't deny which comes back to the point that only large and rich nations can afford to actually build these and in the case of Qatar they're going to recycle some of the stadiums and uh, send them to Africa because that's obviously where you send stuff to <laughs> and <laughs> that's, can you that's send stadiums? <laughs> yeah yeah they get dismantled and reassembled uh, over there and uh, and I mean that's kind of part, or they can get downscaled or turned turned around so they can be used for athletics and and things like that. But you can't deny that there's always kind of an element of redundancy in there. And to give them the credit, I think the Russians have gone full on. They've built new nine stadiums and and renovated three, which with with quite increased capacity and and much better facilities. But it's not only that because they had upgrade to upgrade a lot of their uh, aviation systems and. And runways because obviously it's uh, spread over a very large geographic area so there's a whole host of infrastructure that goes with it and ultimately I think that's that's a decision for uh, sovereign nations to take and whether they can actually afford that and what the benefit that comes from it is whether the economics of it actually pay for itself but I, I feel in this day and age there's some people feel that you know there's there should be more modesty in this 
I think when you talk about a spectacle like the World Cup, that, that would be like uh, an element of trying to run it on the cheap, which is a lot of that happened in, in London in 2012. And it shows for itself, you know, the Olympic Stadium was completely unmemorable. And it looks like something you'd buy from a discount shop. Um, and 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 it's 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 to be fair, it got its uh, uh, a, a kind of an appropriate uh, occupant as a result. <laughs> <laughs> That's West Ham Football Club, which uh, Carl's throwing shade at. But uh, shouts to the Hammers. I, I have I have another question. I, as a South African, of course, remember Zukumi, our wonderful leopard uh, World Cup mascot. Who is the mascot for Russia this World Cup? What have they spent money on promoting? It's a it's a little wolf. Um, yeah. I forgot his name. He he's a wolf who he looks like he has glaucoma because he's wearing those little goggles <laughs> like Edgar Davids. Um, I'm not exactly. I, sure I don't what remember his name, what his name is. Yeah, I don't remember what his name is. But I have to say the graphics of the uh, the, the tournament in Russia they're uh, they're quite um, uh, uh, kind of. Um, uh, retro, you know, revolutionary retro. Uh, mm, yes, um, and kind of a quite a nice change from the usual NAF Disney stuff uh, uh, in in previous tournaments. No, that, that's that's I mean, right. I, I mean, we I think Zabi Vaka, which is uh, the name of I don't know if I've pronounced that at all correctly, but Zabi Vaka is uh, means the one who scores in Russian. That's the little uh, the little wolf with glaucoma, um, who's a mascot who is sticking with a Disneyfied sort of aesthetic. But you're right, Carl. I think that the posters are are actually lovely. Um, we're we're going to come back to some more of these uh, trivial aspects, but I did want to come back to. What about the hosting question? And look at Qatar next time because they're maybe going to even to expand it to forty-eight teams. Uh, maybe yeah. we'll, as a consequence, have to bring in co-hosts from other Gulf states. I mean, we've already commented a little bit on this, but um, Carl, as our Middle East expert, I, I'm going to turn to you um, <laughs> for comment on on you know the paint the, the seeming absurdity of of Qatar hosting a World Cup and in November to add. Yeah, December actually. No. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a Christmas World Cup. Yee <laughs> It's double Christmas. Yeah, yeah exactly. Have a World Cup Christmas Carol. Yeah, you know what? When I first heard about the um, Qatar winning the right to host the World Cup, my my first worry was, um, you know, what happens if somebody kicks the ball like outside of the stadium? Somebody's gonna have to go and get it from Saudi Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, um, but uh, anyway, when I, started, when I started thinking about it, I was like, um, it's it's really it's it's unworkable. Even if they build all the stadiums and and all of that, there's just not enough of a momentum around. And you know, it's actually a, a very passionate footballing country that's uh, just near Qatar and it's got the critical mass and all of that. Saudi Arabia, so that would have been the obvious choice, except. Um, uh, Saudi Arabia has been waging uh, uh, a, a non-violent war against Qatar along with all the other Gulf <laughs> states so, so that rules out any kind of possibility of co-hosting unless uh, Qatar decides to co-host the World Cup with Iran which I think that's going to escalate things a little bit <laughs> But 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 I think they're approaching it all the wrong way, you know. I mean, they they Qatar should have bid for the right to have like a Qatar World Cup, but they should have held it in England. But still, <laughs> World Cup. So instead of actually like building all these stadiums and facilities, they could have just rented the whole country. I mean, literally like all of England, 
and that would cost them like one day's output of petrol or whatever <laughs> and they could have just rented the country for a month or just, or just all on holiday or just at the stadium or just host it at the stadiums of the the clubs that they already own in europe you know it's done To talk about, just finally, before we move on to some of the subplots of this World Cup, uh, the 2026 World Cup will be decided tomorrow. We're recording this on um, Tuesday the 12th, so this will, that'll be Wednesday the 13th. So lucky listeners will probably already know the outcome. So let's refrain from speculating too much so as not to make asses of ourselves. Uh, but the competition basically comes down to Morocco and a North American bid, led by the USA, but which will also involve host cities in Canada and Mexico. Um you and you, you've got a little bit about Morocco, right? Because they've tried to host this before. Yeah, they've tried many times. Um, and I think I'm about to embarrass myself by saying that they will not be awarded the World Cup in 2026. <laughs> it's, well, I mean, arguably Morocco is a much more interesting candidacy than the United States, Mexico and Canada. Because, I mean, obviously the United States have had it before. Mexico have had it twice. And... You know, bringing it back to Africa might be quite interesting. But what yeah. about poor Canada? Canada need its own World Cup. <laughs> but that means they're going to qualify. And, and that's, if that's taking a space that Scotland are, you're not going to get, then you know, I'm completely against I mean, that. I mean, how can they even uh, have that sort of joint bid when the trade war is about to start? Well, exactly. Exactly. Well, that's that's another thing about the separation of football and politics, you know. Um, but yeah, so Morocco have bid for the World Cup I believe four or five times in the past and they've lost every time and every time they do bid it's always surrounded by some sort of hilarious vote buying scandal because I mean, they clearly don't know how to bribe people properly yeah they're not very good at it um, the, and for the 98 World Cup which went to which went to France obviously that was basically understood that it was going to be in Europe and uh, France had the best bid by a mile and they had plenty of support and Morocco came in and they tried to bribe of all people uh, Chuck Blazer and Jeffrey Webb who eventually turned on FIFA and all of his cronies a couple, uh, like a decade and a half later and then in the for the 2010 World Cup in South Africa this is the, the this is the one that really boggles the mind because South Africa were meant to be getting the 2006 World Cup, and then Germany with some sort of I believe there was some some sort of talk of an arms deal or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so some, some weapons sell to Saudi Arabia, I think. Yeah, they they had too much yeah. firepower and 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 beat out the the Moroccan bid. Sorry, the South African bid. So then FIFA essentially said, right, the next World Cup is going to be in Africa. Like hint hint, it's going to be in South Africa. Again, they had plenty of support, but Morocco decided to put up a candidacy anyway, and they put lots of money in it, and they once again called Jeffrey Webb and uh, Chuck Blazer, their faithful friends, to bring them over to Morocco and offer them a $1 million bribe each to vote for Morocco. And just as they were leaving Morocco, they got a phone call from the South African FA who decided to offer them $10 million to uh, invest in development projects in Central America. So, you know, Morocco, they try really Sal hard. Sal solidarity. Yeah, they play by FIFA's rules. You know, they play dirty like everyone else, but they're just, their heart's not really in it. You know, they're not, they're not properly corrupt. If you're going to play, if you're going to play dirty, do it well. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, yeah. the reason why I'm saying that Morocco aren't going to get this World Cup is not just because they failed at, you know, corrupting people for, uh, for decades. But the thing is, I mean, all eyes are on FIFA at the moment, and FIFA are making these, uh, they, they're 
claiming that they're putting more uh, emphasis on this this technical uh, analysis team that they sent out to the um, to the to the host countries earlier this year, and I think Morocco came away with I think two point seven points out of five, which the minimum that you need to be to even be considered as a host is two point five, and the North American bid got four maybe four point one something like that. And even though that hasn't stopped FIFA in the past, because Qatar was the the worst ranked bid for that World Cup, and so mm. was Russia actually, was the the least ranked bid. But I mean, all eyes are on FIFA at the moment, and surely the North American bid has too much support, now even you, with the yeah. shithole countries thing with Trump. You know, but I don't think that comes into it. Well, listeners can message yeah. in and tell us how wrong uh, Ewan yeah. was. It's worth remembering that Russia did win ahead of a joint bid from Spain and Portugal, a joint bid from Belgium and Holland, and England as well. So, yeah, you never know. Um, we're going to yeah. hear a little bit more about Morocco in a little bit because it's one of the subplots uh, in the World Cup. Um, but just briefly, I wanted to talk about Chechnya because there's an interesting case here. And this is going to lead into a whole chat about Mohamed Salah um, and Egypt. Egypt is being hosted uh, in Chechnya um, by its kind of brutal authoritarian leader, uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, who invited previously Iran, Saudi and Tunisia to set up the training base there. Eventually, Egypt decided to go with it. Um, and it caused a little bit of a scandal recently in that Salah was photographed with Kadyrov, um, which seemed to be um, impolitic, I guess is the way to put it. Um, so as a, as a way to, to kind of lead into this, um, I mean, Carl, Salah, I think, I don't know if people realize the extent to which Salah, one, is a huge global star, but specifically how much he's loved across the Arab world, not just in Egypt. No, he's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, uh, and 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 it's, uh, uh, I think there's levels of pride and uh, passion that sometimes I feel are over the top, despite how much I'm a, I'm a big fan of Salah. Uh, because there's a bit of kind of neediness for recognition out of it rather than just celebrating an achievement. But he is a, uh, an amazing uh, star and in a, particularly in a very bleak period of Arab history, he's like one of the few things that uh, people feel can relate to and celebrate. The flip side of that is that People are always kind of pushing him to become more than he is, to become uh, a political kind of ambassador, to become a cultural ambassador. And, and and this is just a young man in his 20s, you know, who spent m- most of his life concentrating on football. And um, it's, it's, I, I feel he's being overburdened, which is, again, to me, this idea of separating politics from uh, 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 from sports is very important, and I have to say, if if Kadyrov had walked up to me to shake my hand, I wouldn't necessarily have recognized them. I would have been, uh, <laughs> who's did this? He wears demented... a tracksuit half the time, anyway. How would you yeah, know? Yeah, and he looks like a demented elf, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so the interesting thing about Chechnya, and the reason I bring it up, is that uh, Kadyrov is trying to position himself a little bit as the go-between between Putin and Russia and the Arab and Muslim world, and as, as sort of the representative for Russian Muslims. Um, Chechnya would be, I think these are the words of his father, uh, the link tying together Russia and Saudi Arabia, which is convenient as that's the opening game of the World Cup, which is what we're moving <laughs> on to now. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. This is Alex. If this is your first time with us at Alpha Bunga Bunga, I wanted to tell you what we're about. This is an exceptional episode focusing on football, Our normal gig is this. We have long-form interviews and discussions on global politics. We look at elections, parties, movements, ideologies, and cultural phenomena that shape our strange times. 
Our starting point is basically that the so-called end of history, in which Western liberal democracy was held to be the final form of human government, is now over. That's why we always ask, what comes next? If you like our guest this week, you might want to check out previous episodes on sport and scandal with Ewan, that's episode 22, or our episode on satire today with Carl, episode 17. Coming up over the next month, we're talking about centrist authoritarianism, why it's not the political extremes but the center that's the least democratic today. We've also got Colombia's elections, the first in that country since the historic peace settlement with the FARC. And is this the end of Erdogan or his coronation as an even stronger ruler? That's Turkey's elections at the end of June. If you like our stuff, please subscribe, share it, and tell your friends. And now back to the geopolitics of the World Cup. Um, so on to Russia versus Saudi, which is uh, most likely the worst opening game in the history of the World Cup. And part of the reason for this is that pre- up until 2006, you had the defending champion opening proceedings. And now you've got the hosts. And when you have a host uh, which is as weak as uh, this Russian team, you know, Russia has a long footballing history, but this is most likely the worst Russian national team in the country's history. Um so you've got a weak Russian side, a weak host playing one of the when they do qualify, what is always the worst team in the World Cup, which is Saudi Arabia, famously got beat eight 0 off Germany in two thousand two. Um, so aside from aside from uh, Kadyrov, um, you know you've also got other geopolitical sort of backdrops to this, which is you've got Russia and Saudi being uh, on the opposite sides of the Syrian civil war. So. Rather than talking about the game, because I don't think there's a lot of interest there, <laughs> let's talk about this backdrop. I I, I think uh, I've, I've been mapping all the kind of geopolitical tensions uh, uh, since we started talking about the podcast, and that's kind of the first one to pop out. But I, I had reached a similar conclusion to you, because basically there's no footballing interest whatsoever in there. Uh, I think we can only hope for like a proper bust-up uh, and then maybe the the crowd joins in and becomes like a a, a spectator, but without anybody getting seriously harmed, obviously. <laughs> and and, <laughs> and, I think, and I think kids don't try this at home. And I think this is really you know the best you can hope for. And uh, it's it's kind of what I call it the the Zidane effect. You know the Zidane <laughs> moment when the football isn't working, just kind of like headbutt <laughs> someone. And um, uh, I'm hoping again without any kind of unnecessary violence but I'm hoping for come some kind of bust up uh, along those lines uh, but it's gonna be like the beginning of a number of historic confrontations uh, uh, along geopolitical and historical lines uh, that hopefully will come to it I think uh, uh, the reconquest of Andalusia and the capturing of Ramos and taking him back in chains to Cairo to be displayed and, and, and hit with flip-flops by the entire population of Cairo well, so I did want to ask exactly on this point. Uh, after what happened to, to uh, Salah in the Champions League final uh, where Ramos dislocated his elbow, Egypt aren't in the same group. They could potentially meet in the last 16 round, but could Morocco maybe do Egypt a little favor uh, and, and get revenge uh, on Sergio Ramos uh, in, for Salah? I think that's that's on the cards. Uh, uh, if it were Algeria, they'd probably just lose out of spite because they <laughs> hate Egypt. Uh, but Morocco has a better relationship uh, with uh, with Egypt, and they also both countries kind of uh, 
are let's say in the um, in the Saudi uh, orbit uh, the orb uh, and more importantly <laughs> more importantly I think uh, a lot of people don't recognize you know the historical hostilities I mean Spain occupies uh, uh, Moroccan territory and there's lots of um, um, uh, basically Andalusia <laughs> I mean you and, could say this matchup is uh, pretty Moorish Slow clap. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Alex, we didn't catch that. Yeah, but well, how it, could it's it's pretty Moorish because uh, it, yeah. you don't need to, to explain it. Everyone uh, don't, don't, it don't explain the joke. <laughs> I mean, you know, at the same time, we should also remember that the Spanish Civil War began from Morocco. Care to tell us more? Well, uh, Franco was in Mor Morocco. Uh, during uh, when the uh, Republic was declared and the invasion of uh, Spain, which triggered the civil war, came from Morocco, led by Franco with the colonial division. So I'm just saying. All right. Wow. I Good fact, more more beef to be had there between uh, Group A rivals, Spain and Morocco. Um, to move on to another, to stay with that. Sorry, that's Group B. But Group A, um, is there an Egypt-Saudi rivalry we should be aware of? Um, and is that going to spice things up in that game, which is also not the most appetizing of fixtures, Carl? Yeah, it's uh, that. That actually, I think, might be good in a footballing sense because the teams are are kind of not on very different uh, levels. Uh, and even though, kind of notionally, Saudi Arabia and Egypt, you know, they're they're politically kind of uh, close in the current moment. Uh, but there's lots of frictions, especially for the Egyptians, that they they see themselves. You know, the the expression goes, "Masr um dunya." Egypt is the mother of the world, and they see themselves as, uh, you know, the kind of the established aristocracy of the Arab world, and the rest of us are just imposters. Um, so that's going to be definitely a very hot one. Uh, albeit not for very explicit and obvious geopolitical reasons, but. Uh, for much kind of longer uh, Arab sibling rivalry. That's interesting. Um, Go didn't ahead, Egypt also have a, you know, uh, under Nasser, they tried to start a sort of United Arab Republic, which led to a confrontation with Saudi Arabia? Yeah, and they also uh, were, you know, there was a um, another uh, war in Yemen in which both countries uh, were involved. Uh, so there's a very long history in the Nasserite uh, era of uh, of confrontation, but uh, uh, you know the the kind of now politically broadly politically uh, there's kind of um, after Sisi took power there there was a lot of help from Saudi Arabia for him and he's still seen on their side although. When it comes to Syria, they don't see eye to eye, so it's a bit more complicated. But historically, there's definitely been much more kind of uh, clear political confrontations between the two. And not to kind of over elaborate the point, there was the camp of the the kind of the young republics and the camp of the the monarchies, which you know the republics were led by by Nasser and the kind of the movements of national liberation, whereas uh, Iraq at the time and and Saudi Arabia were obviously much more conservative ro royalist regimes. I mean, Salah could get revenge for Nasser. <laughs> <laughs> that could be stretching the point a little bit. Um, yeah. One final thing from from that broad region of the world. Um, one 
little story that's come out in the past couple of days is that Iran may have to play shoeless or at any rate without their usual Nike football <laughs> boots because uh, Iran now don't have access to Nike football boots because the company has to comply with the US sanctions of Iran, which is a mad little story. And you just think, well, I mean, they couldn't, one, they're giving them for free because they've got a deal. And worst case, couldn't they just buy some Nike football boots? <laughs> I mean, and, and also, just don't forget, the Americans didn't qualify. Well, exactly. So this is this is the U.S. getting getting their own back, perhaps. Stealing, yeah, stealing, stealing Iran's shoes. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is, by the way, if you wanted in the Arab world, if you wanted to get back at someone, you'd wait for them to go in the mosque and steal their shoes. <laughs> it's, like, it's almost Trump is going out of his way to like choose a culturally appropriate insult. <laughs> Who knew he was so culturally sensitive? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just delivered that out. But seriously, on a serious note, I think the two kind of missed opportunities here is that Iran and Saudi Arabia weren't drawn in the same group. And that the other one is that uh, uh, the United States didn't qualify where there could have been any number of countries uh, uh, they could have met. You know, uh, uh, the U.S. Russia would have been a really interesting one. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and it would have helped out planning this podcast a great deal. So thanks a lot, yeah, USA. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I have, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, is an, an England-Russia would, would have been nice too. Yeah. Yep. This is what I was going to say. I think it's like now that the U.S. hasn't qualified, the leadership of the free world has fell back onto the shoulders of England. <laughs> <laughs> I can see no more kind of capable person to lift that kind of uh, 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 civilizational burden than Harry Kane. <laughs> <laughs> well, at, at the head of the White Army, charging yeah. into Russia. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, and the, the Churchill role is played by, uh, you know, uh, Gareth Southgate. <laughs> <laughs> the great orator. Um, Right, so we're going to come back to a couple final little bits in a second, but we do have to talk about Brazil, um, because I'm sure listeners are interested to know how it's being received here. Carl made unfortunate reference already at the beginning to the 7-1, and we can't avoid it. Um, so I'm going to come to you, and what's been the fallout from that 7-1? Um, you were here during the World Cup 2014. Um, are people excited now? How's what's the, the evolution of the team been like? All this kind of stuff. Well, there was a opinion poll that came out today, which uh, this particular polling institute always runs before the World Cup, asking about the interest of Brazilians in the World Cup. And for the first time since they've started doing this, uh, over 50% said that they had no real interest. They weren't really looking forward to the World Cup. And even though it has, I think this has been overplayed a little bit in Brazil, people are saying that, oh, you know, our, our streets aren't being painted, which was an old kind of tradition for the World Cup in Brazil. Uh, everyone's saying that people aren't that up for it. But I think there is definitely um, a bit of kind of reticence and perhaps a bit of disinterest from a lot of people who were formerly fans of the Brazilian national team, but now might not even cheer on Brazil, but they'll probably watch the World Cup anyway. Um, I think in terms of the 7-1, in terms of their actual chances of, of coming back from that and maybe winning the World Cup, I think if you're a football fan and you're Brazilian, you have to realise that Brazil have an excellent chance of winning this World Cup. But speaking to Brazilians on the street, like literally the only person who was born in Brazil who thinks and will say in public that Brazil are going to win the World Cup is sitting right across from me. Right? <laughs> Hiya, guys. <laughs> yeah. Like um, no, so one else, no one else dares to say it. 
Um, my question for you, Yun, is it uh, the historical trauma of, uh, you know, this dark moment, this darkest moment in Brazilian history, or is it the connection to another political trauma recently, which is another dark moment uh, of Brazilian history when the uh, golpe happened in the protests the, for the against uh, Dilma's government supposedly for, for listeners benefit that was yeah for that was the the uh, impeachment and and the, the soft coup against uh, Brazil's former president yeah um, many of the people uh, on the streets were wearing the the shirt of the national team and it became very strongly associated with sort of a uh, Brazilian nationalism and chauvinism and a sort of a uh, type of uh, class and racial identity uh, which does not is not inclusive of the majority of Brazilian people is that a factor in as well I, I definitely think it is I mean in the last few World Cups we have seen that the support for the Brazilian national team is going down a Bit, and that was previously due to the Brazilian FA, the CBF, basically being shown to be the complete corrupt um, people that they actually are. And the public, you know, picking up on that, slowly just started to lose interest. But now this has definitely brought in this extra element, especially to those on the left who follow football. As in, like, it's, it's a bit embarrassing to kind of leave the house wearing your Brazil shirt now if you're, you know, at least slightly left leaning you know yeah. it's not really it's not really the done thing and with, and with the with the majority in the country thinking that that impeachment believing that that impeachment was a coup which it was um you know yeah for a lot of people it is identified with those protests in 2015 and 2016 you couldn't wear a brazil shirt without it being associated with right wing mm-hmm. supposedly anti-corruption protests um, and I don't know to what extent things have come around and maybe we've gotten past that. It's questionable. I've seen lots of uh, stuff on Facebook where people are selling shirts, red shirts, with the CBF uh, emblem and sometimes a hammer and sickle on it as a kind of alternative Brazil kit uh, with the red shirt. Um, on the other hand, I'm, I'm all for claiming back Brazilian national symbols and not letting them be uh, you know, completely co-opted by the right. So... Yeah. Or, I mean, you could always just wear a blue shirt, which is, you know, which is the other alternative. a happy compromise. And, you know, I mean, uh, Temer, the most unpopular president in uh, Brazilian history, whose approval rating, which is probably less than 2% right now, perhaps he could be like the Dunga of Brazilian football, of course, referring to their manager during the last World Cup, and be removed soon as well. Well, the interesting thing is that since Temer took power, the Brazilian national team has actually just gotten really good all of a sudden. Um, so you and you've got a theory about this because Bra- maybe Brazil can't win under a left-wing government or a center-left government, um, right? I think the last time Brazil won the World Cup was in 2002, which was yeah. under Fernando Henrique Cardoso, who's a center-right ca- uh, politician. Mm-hmm. 94 was José Sarney. Uh, 70 was during the military dictatorship. 62 is the only exception where you're under uh, João Goulart. So that's just one out of five. And in 58, it was Juscelino Kubitschek, who was just this kind of centre, centre-right, um, kind of port-barrel politics man. So yeah, I mean, perhaps. He was a national developmentalist. That's exactly, okay. 
Um, so maybe that's so maybe that's it. Maybe that's a one tiny silver lining uh, for for Brazil and Brazilians right now that the Brazil might win the World Cup because we've finally got <laughs> we've got a right wing yeah. government yeah. again. Lola can do it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> can I say about Temer though? I I just want to kind of as a, as a uh, Lebanese mention yeah. as a Lebanese how proud we are <laughs> that uh, a Lebanese person has taken Lebanese corruption to an international <laughs> level <laughs> and and. Uh, uh, this, you know, in many countries, you have a hall of fame for like famous sportsmen and sportswomen, mm-hmm. and we have a hall of fame for corrupt politicians that make it on the international scene. And Temer is right at the center of that. It's, it is the national pride in, in the levels of corruption and authoritarianism. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I referred earlier to the phrase Obama's fire, she rubs me, get something done, which is also coined uh, in reference or by, depending on who you ask another Lebanese immigrant politician in Sao Paulo, uh, Ajimir Jibahos, in the 1950s. Uh-huh. And also Paulo Malufi later on. <laughs> yeah, who is his mayor of Sao Paulo, another another famous Lebanese another politician. Famous. Um, so, so thanks. Uh, Cheers, so, Carl. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you, Ewan uh, and Alex, I have another question about maybe the symbols of Brazil. For me, I mean, uh, normally football team mascots uh, are not really thought of during the World Cup, uh, but I feel this year is an exception. Carajinho Pistola, the angry little canary, the new symbol of Brazilian, the Brazilian national team, which refers to the Brazilian mascot who was uh, rejigged in order to make him look more masculine and assertive after the canary was responsible for the 7-1 defeat. Uh, I, I see Brazilians have really embraced this new symbol. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I remember the first time uh, he was he was paraded out with the Brazilian national team. It was at the end of the Donga reign, so it was it didn't really fit very well. You know, it was everyone was really annoyed with the national team, and they weren't playing very well. They wanted to get rid of the manager, and then this uh, comical mascot turns up, who is a really really pissed off uh, yellow bird, and it just kind of it it it, it just made things even worse. You know, but. I mean, we're talking about a canary, which is never going to be the most intimidating animal in the world. Yeah, and but so you've just... got to see him. You've got to see him. <laughs> he's, um, he's really pissed off about something. I don't think anyone's found out exactly what he's upset about. Well, it's kind of a vengeful canary who's coming into this to avenge the 7-1. I think that must have been the design inspiration behind <laughs> it. The big story is that he is um, he's a bit of a political prisoner at the moment because he's actually not allowed to come to Russia and walk out with the Brazilian national team because FIFA fear that because obviously he's such a great mascot and he's so funny that he will take space away from the their wolf with glaucoma uh, who they need at center stage at all times. This is this is how Br- Russia brainwashes people. Uh, they they take political prisoners and they don't you know they don't let their mascot um, they yeah. don't let the mascot show up. Two last little bits. Um, is VAR going to ruin the World Cup? Um, this is the video-assisted refereeing which are introducing this World Cup. Um, is it the justice that we also sorely crave when our team gets cruelly denied um, by an incorrect refereeing decision? Or is it a vain desire for justice which can never really be achieved? Um, George? I think it's just going to be annoying and boring and string out a lot of decisions which is how we've seen it used and there's going to be some kind of fake controversy it's just going to basically going to allow people to talk about var not the football in the in the aftermath so i'm pretty i'm not very positive also you know it 
England You're not very to... positive in general. George, <laughs> well, as an England fan looking forward to the World Cup, you have to be, you have to moderate yeah. your, uh, your views. But what happened when uh, you know when England last played Germany? If there'd been VAR, there might have been a goal by Lampard that had been allowed. But then looking a bit further back, the only bit of uh, international silverware that we've won might have been taken away by a non-goal. So which, uh, uh, do, didn't do you, go in. Do you consider yourself as a member of another great British political tradition, a Luddite? A Luddite, uh, yeah. Well, to, to a certain extent, if if you're, you know, you need to to respond to the the technologies which um, oppress you by both attacking the people who oppress you and, and the technology simultaneously. I'm not sure that VAR is the uh, <laughs> the, the sewing the, the sewing uh, the, the loom of, of the 21st century. Um, but no, I don't. I don't know. I think it. I, I'm not particularly enthusiastic about this. It just slows up slows up the the football, doesn't it? But I think you're missing the big VAR angle over here because we talked in the beginning how Russia is going to exploit this, right? And everybody's kind of trying to figure out how they're going to do it. And and my own theory is basically there's going to be a very controversial VAR decision after which the centrists are going to say the VAR was hacked by Russian trolls. <laughs> <laughs> right? And it would be like another of Putin's 3D chess moves, you know, untruths. <laughs> he will kind of like, in a, in a kind of a fit of Baudelarian kind of uh, simulacrum, he's going to kind of present this uh, the simulated reality. And uh, it'll be like the third episode of the Brexit Trump. Uh, uh, <laughs> England goes out of the World Cup because of uh, Russian trolls hacking fake, VAR. Fake, fake replays, fake replays passing on yeah. your screen, showing things that didn't happen. Exactly. Uh, and also judging from the quality of the Russian bot propaganda during uh, the last few uh, historical incidents, it would be a very poorly photoshopped replay. That you'll be like sort of like very pixelated. Yeah, it'll oh. just be a, a wee guy playing like FIFA 99 or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then obviously all the pundits would be like, yeah, yeah, but you know that to the average person, they don't see past these details. They obviously were brainwashed. <laughs> I mean, you wait and see the amount of editorials. I'm, this is a prediction I'm making. I'm wearing actually an octopus suit to make this prediction. <laughs> uh, this this is going to be the big World Cup story. How Putin hacked the VAR system. Are you actually predicting that there's if Russia score one goal, that goal will be shown from all different angles, like apparently North Korea's goal in the 1966 World Cup to show yeah. that Russia basically wins all of their games three 0 with a eerily similar goal. <laughs> yeah, and it would be like a back to the theme of like this being the modernist uh, kind of. Uh, World Cup, it would be like uh, experimental cinema, like uh, uh, Eisenstein. You know, you get the <laughs> same cut repeated over and over. That, that, there's something in there. All right. Yeah. So from from, from predictions, uh, we should move on to close up and make a one and one from He's everyone. Not playing this year. Uh, he retired. <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant. That was brilliant, Carl. Um, but yeah, so predictions on who's going to win and what you'd like to see happen in this World Cup. That can be anything uh, that you want to see happen, whether it's uh, Carl's uh, violence, but not too violent, uh, between footballers and maybe fans, uh, between some of these contentious but boring games, uh, or anything else you'd like to pick. Um, I'm going to come to you in first. Well, who, sorry, so who's going to win 
Um, I would think we're between Brazil and Spain. That might even be the final for me. Uh, I would prefer Brazil to win that. What I would like to happen in the World Cup... Right, so, you know, all biases aside, I would like to take this exciting young English team, more representative of the kind of English society, you know, young, talented players, and I would like to see their souls completely crushed by a 3 <laughs> loss to Panama. <laughs> <laughs> so that they're spoiled for all future national team football. All right, who's next? Uh, George. Um, so I'm still recovering from that, uh, from that, uh, from what you had said. Um, no, who, who do I think is going to win? Yeah, I, I do think um, Brazil have a really, really good shot. I, you know, you can never discount Germany. They've, if they can afford not to take Sane, they must have an amazing squad. Um, but their form is terrible. But I'd, I'd go for go for Brazil. And what do I want to happen? Well, I've, I recently suffered a. A cycling injury so I'll be watching uh, I think pretty much all of the matches of the World Cup and I just want to see some beauty I want to see a... yeah that's that's, that's, that's the most amazing. convenient injury ever I, I'm, I'm kind of envious yeah uh, it, 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 it's a genuine injury um, but I've been rereading um, Soccer in Sun and Shadow by Eduardo Galliano which is an absolutely fantastic book and it just made me think yeah I just want to see one or two in all of those hours of, of watching one or two moments of genuine uh a beauty that football can deliver, but it, it, it never does. But uh, that's, that's what I'm hoping for, and I'm not I'm not hoping for that from England. That's just too much. All right, uh, Ben. Well, uh, I mean, I think Canaño Pistola is going to lead uh, the Brazilian national team to glory. Uh, I think they're the most uh, settled and balanced team in the World Cup, with. Um, a uh, squad that has depth, character, and the best manager in the tournament. Uh, in terms of things I would like to see, there's a number of things. I mean, Ewan's repeated one of them already to me. Uh, I would like to see a African te- team progress with dignity, grace, and style into the upper echelons of the tournament. And I think I'd probably also like to see, uh, you know, at one re- at one level, this maybe is idealistic, uh, some sort of normalization of relations with Russia uh, during this tournament. And uh, I think, finally, um, I would also like to see um, Ramos carted off in a stretcher early on in the tournament uh, with a face which looks like he's really thought about his career and his misdeeds and he's learned his lesson. <laughs> Excellent. Um, a plus one to that. And finally, Carl, who's going to win? What do you want to see happen? Well, um, part of me wants Germany to win so we can get five trophies like Brazil. And again, this is not footballing thing. It's a it's a culture Lebanese thing. This is the kind of the <laughs> deepest fissure within Lebanese society. Uh, and and in fact, I think the most extreme Brazil fans in the world anywhere now are um, uh, in Lebanon. And it's it's kind of this descent into fist fights and. And, and 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 battles and, and confrontations in Lebanon and, and often with weapons uh, so that's a very deep fissure in Lebanese society and I would really like hope for uh, Germany to kind of equal Brazil's uh, number of World Cups but I don't think it's gonna happen I think it's probably France is going to win a kind of carried to victory on a Jupiterian wave of arrogance <laughs> generated 
by Macron's ego. It's just going to propel them to victory because you can see it, one of those moments when this little twerp, everything is going right for him and he, he thinks he's the center of the universe and a true to form is just going to be a reaffirmation of his uh, uh, expanded ego. So I'm, I'm, I'm calling it for uh, France. And what would really like to happen uh, and I kind of there's been visions of this uh, before. Uh, it's for Egypt to qualify so they can play uh, Spain in the second round. I don't want them to win. I just want Hejazi to just go straight into Ramos, and uh, um, I, I, I don't want to be arrested uh, for this. But uh, let, let's just let's say that 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 will be the end of his footballing career, preferably, preferably. And I and I understand this can be arranged in Russia. Uh, uh, because to take back into chains, and I don't want to labor the point, so he can be displayed in public in Cairo for all uh, occupants of Cairo to come and, and hit him with a shoe, which is don't know this in Arab culture. This is considered offensive. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> all right. Thank uh, you uh, very uh, much, uh, Carl. Before we go, Alex, we need your prediction and your. Uh, uh, thing you would like to see. We can't let you start. Of course, you <laughs> no, want that, Switzerland that, to win as a Swiss citizen. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I mean, look, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm really hoping happens is that we get a play-by-play on the World Cup from Donald Trump's Twitter account. I think that would be excellent and really bring a lot of things to light and enlighten the world about football, especially those uh, part-time fans who only turn up for the World Cup. Um, and I think what's going to happen, I can't, I've tried to manipulate my brain into thinking about other scenarios where other leading uh, potential candidates for victory this July in Russia um, are something other than Brazil, but it's not, it's going to be Brazil. That's my prediction and my hope. All right, uh, that's it for us uh, this week. Thank you very much to Carl Sharrow at Carl Remarks on Twitter and to you and Marshall. Um, I've been Alex Hochul, you've had George Hoare and uh, Ben Fogel in London. Catch you later, bye-bye.